0: Hello, this is Leela Viss, and welcome to Key Ideas. Piano teaching doesn't come bundled with ready-made solutions. This podcast highlights some brilliant options for innovative piano teachers just like you. Episode number three is a flashbulb episode called Practicing in the Dark. We got free tickets to a pandemic roller coaster and the ride hasn't stopped. There are no breaks, we can't get off until a vaccine shows up, and it feels like things are out of control. I've never been a fan of accepting bad things, but I've come to terms with deciding to live with the bad and control what I can. So, this is the third in a series of episodes focusing on things we can control in our studios. In the first episode, I talked about how we can control where we teach. In the second, I focused on how we can control what happens in a lesson. In this third episode, I discuss what we can control between lessons, how our students practice. I'll get started right after this. Hi, this is Renee. I'm a piano teacher in Atlanta and a friend of Leela. In this episode, Leela mentions research-based practice strategies and ways to develop durable learning games are a great way to disguise tests and quizzes which are crucial to making things stick. When you gamify, you solidify. At leelavis.com, you can find clever games, including digital escape room games that are ideal for online lessons or for use during off-bench time. Find links to games and free digital stickers featuring dozens of practice strategies in the show notes at leelavis.com slash key ideas. Now back to Leela and learn how to keep your students from practicing in the dark. I'm glad you're here and recognize that your time is precious, so let's dive in. When our students leave a lesson, any control that we had is virtually wiped away. As bright as our lessons may be, when we say goodbye, our students go dark. They've disappeared into a black hole. Now it's up to them to forge their way through a week of practice before they show up at our doorstep or in our Zoom waiting room. Here are some ways to stir that practice pot so that it gets the attention it deserves. And I'll pause here to say the tips I have in mind are for those who typically have little parental support. That being said, if parents sit in on every lesson, these tips may still be helpful. From what I can tell, my adult students and some parents do not know what it takes to practice so that progress is made. It's a skill that must be learned, just like the skill of playing the piano. Like pouring a glass of milk, practicing is an executive skill, quite a sophisticated one. An executive skill or function is a mental skill that helps us manage daily tasks. As discussed in episode number two, many of our pianists may struggle to follow instructions and even find their books and the correct page when practicing at home. If we want to grow strong pianists, we need to grow strong practicers with a system that teaches and reinforces executive skills. The book called Smart But Scattered Sorry, I'm not taking a chance on pronouncing the authors' names. In this book, it explains the steps to teach executive skills. I've modified them a little for how we might use them in a typical lesson with a pianist. Um, I'll call her Lisa. First, we choose the piece or portion of a piece to practice. Then, together with Lisa, we set a goal for her next lesson, like play lines one and two hands together at a comfort tempo with zero errors. Then, I walk Lisa through steps to move her towards her goal. Lisa, let's clap the rhythm first. Now, can you play it hands alone? Ooh, try it hands together now. Now I ask Lisa to name the steps we just took, and as she describes them, I write them down on a sticky note on her music book. Then I let Lisa go through the checklist and practice the steps on her own and give her guidance when she needs it. And last, I ask if she feels confident with using these practice steps at home, and if not, we go through them again. It feels like a long process, but the time you take to get systems in place will be worth your effort. As Lisa becomes a more seasoned practicer, I'll fade my supervision and will use less time to review practice steps. I use the word system because that's what practice is—a lineup of steps, a process to achieve a goal. In his book *Atomic Habits*, James Clear says goals can provide direction and even push you forward in the short term. But eventually, a well-designed system will always win. Having a system is what matters. Committing to the process is what makes the difference. Now, all of these steps are only valuable if they become a habit for Lisa. According to James Clear, the process for establishing habits is based on the premise that a new habit is a result of a changed behavior. There are four laws of behavior change. The first one is make it obvious. I must make it obvious to Lisa that practice will help her develop into a fine player. The best way to do that is to make sure she practices and succeeds at the lesson with my supervision. The next law is that it must be attractive. Perhaps the best way to make practice attractive is by gamifying it. I could use the link and chain practice I mentioned in episode number two. Or I could ask Lisa to play a small portion three times, and the third time she must play it perfectly, or she has to start all over. (laughs) And if she asks why three times, well, first, I've always liked that number. And recently, I heard a fresh way to explain the magic of the number three in an online fitness class. (laughs) The first time you learn it, the second time you practice it, and the third time you crush it. The next law involved in establishing a habit, I have to make it easy for Lisa. I like to make a practice step so ridiculously easy that Lisa rolls her eyes. Then I add just a little more to the task and she's eager to jump into the next challenge. The fourth law, a new habit must be satisfying to Lisa. When Lisa beams with pride because she's mastered a favorite piece between lessons, that's when I know I've done my job and she's done hers. So once we've set up a practice system for our pianists, and they establish practice as a regular habit, it's good to know how to make their practice as productive as possible. Cognitive scientists continue to research how students learn in the classroom, and their findings are adaptable to our pianists and their practice, too. The authors of Powerful Teaching Unleash the Science of Learning describe four research-based power tools for learning that they implemented in their classrooms. They are retrieval practice, spaced practice, interleaving, and feedback-driven metacognition. Much of the classroom-based research for their book came from the groundbreaking book called Make It Stick which offers scientifically proven concrete techniques on how to help students become more productive learners. The strategies discussed in Powerful Teaching are simple techniques that can be applied immediately. Please keep in mind that I'm not a cognitive scientist and have brainstormed and categorized ideas inspired by their research. If you want to learn more, read the book Powerful Teaching Or stick around as I unearth more from the book myself and share it here at Key Ideas. And speaking of podcasts, much of the information that follows I learned in a podcast hosted by Jennifer Gonzalez called Cult of Pedagogy. The link for it is in the show notes. Okay, back to the strategies. Here are some ways to translate them to practice between lessons that we can use as piano teachers. I also give examples of practice tips to share with your pianists that follow each of these strategies. The first power practice tool is called Retrieval Practice, which is recalling knowledge from long-term memory rather than constantly feeding it into the brain. (laughs) We are all guilty of shoving things into our pianists' heads, and Retrieval is about pulling out information instead. A struggle to remember is called a desirable difficulty, and it's actually a good thing. This means that instead of theory pages or alongside theory pages, I give Lisa mini-quizzes or play short games that review concepts throughout a lesson. And to Nara, I send a question of the day, a little quiz, based on her last lesson or off-bench assignment. For example, Lisa, what does that top number mean in a time signature? Here are two practice strategies that I like to use that include retrieval practice. The first one is called Don't Peek. Choose a piece or section you recently memorized. See how far you can play it without looking at the sheet music. If you can't remember a part, try to remember it without peeking at the sheet music. And the other one is called Make It Easy. When working on a tough section hands together, cover the entire measure with a sticky note except beat one. Play beat one hands together. Uncover beat two. Play beats one and two hands together. Continue until section is learned hands together. The second power tool is called spaced practice, which means revisiting old information by asking students to retrieve information from a few days, weeks, or even months after they've learned it. Because it's harder to recall, it actually makes the learning that comes from it much more durable. You can use spaced retrieval practice within lessons and between lessons. I like to call it drive by practice. For example, I ask Lisa to play a piece, then play a scale, then play the piece again. Or I ask her to play a piece at home before dinner, then again after. As a lesson opener, I can ask a blast from the past question Lisa, what key are you in when you see three sharps in the key signature? So two practice strategies that involve space practice would be the drive-by practice, which I just mentioned, or another one would be around the clock. Play a section or piece two times in the morning. Play it again two times in the evening. Observe how you did, better or worse. The third power tool for learning is interleaving, which means mixing up content from different areas to build stronger retention of information. This strategy prevents students from repeating the same drill or piece over and over until it becomes mindless. If Lisa is playing a sonata or sonatina, she will encounter interleaving. Just when her brain has the exposition and all its patterns figured out that lead to the dominant chord, the recapitulation revisits similar material but changes it slightly as it travels back to the home tone. So, working on both sections simultaneously makes her brain switch back and forth, and builds stronger retention. Two practice strategies that use interleaving are Homework Plug-in. Practice a section or piece for five minutes. Complete a school homework assignment. Then play the same section or piece again. And notice how you did, better or worse. And here's another. Around the World. Divide and number a piece into six sections. Roll the dice and begin playing at that number. When you reach the end, circle back to the beginning, and then stop playing when you've reached where you began. And the last tool is called, wait for it, feedback-driven metacognition. It's a huge term, and this is helping pianists learn how to discriminate between what they know and what they don't. After you give a mini-quiz or play a game, Review the answers immediately so pianists know if they've got them correct or not. This way, they're getting feedback and a chance to test their discrimination skills of what they know and what they don't know, which is metacognition. I can ask Lisa to be the teacher and let her teach me or her friends a concept. This will show her what she knows and what may be unclear to her. Or I can give Lisa the reins on feedback. Instead of me diving into my thoughts after her practice, I ask her what she thought of her performance first. Or I let her perform a piece, and then I play the piece the way the composer intended it to be played, and let Lisa decide if her playing was the same or different from mine. And then I can ask her, if it was different, how so? Here are two practice strategies that require feedback-driven metacognition because they ask pianists to make self-assessments. The first one is called Dice Decides. Isolate a tricky section in your piece with sticky notes. Roll the dice. Play the section that many times. The last time you must play the section with no errors, or you must start all over and roll again. And here's one more, Link and Chain. Isolate four tricky measures. Play one measure until it's perfect, and earn one paper clip. Repeat with the next measure. Play both measures and if zero errors, link the two clips together. Continue until all clips are chained together. Was your intuition right? Are you already using these tools or variations of them in your lessons? Good for you. Or are there some to consider adding into your routine? Let me recap what you can immediately take back to your lessons. First, build in lesson time to guide your pianists through systematic practice steps so they can learn the skill of practicing. Next, if you want your pianist to make practice a habit, help them change their behavior and establish this new habit. The four laws of changing a behavior are make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. And as your pianists establish the habit of practice with a strong system in place, use research-based strategies like retrieval, space practice, interleaving, and feedback-driven metacognition to make their practice productive, to make their practice lead to progress. Although we can't control much once our pianists leave a lesson, we do have control of how we prepare them for practice between lessons. Your guidance will lighten their path as they practice in the dark. I leave you with this quote from Aristotle We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. As always, find links to all the resources I mention in this podcast at slash key ideas. And take a moment and subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch the next episode. And I greatly appreciate your kind reviews. Until then, hang in there and see you in the trenches.